This podcast is a production of Faith Living Church. If you like what you hear, join us for church sometime in our Plantsville, Connecticut location, Saturdays, 6 p.m. or Sundays, 9 and 11 a.m. or online anytime at faithlivingchurch.com. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Joe, and uh, I only have 10 pages of notes. But I did, I did for mercy's sake, I did cross out a couple of words. So, uh, but we're just gonna we're just gonna start and um, really uh, talk. If you didn't listen to Pastor Mike's message last week, um, he even uh, thank you, uh, Mike. Even left his uh, illustrations here. Um, uh, I asked him to because I thought exactly what he was talking about about repentance and and the, the the role and the key between the idea of repentance and revival. And this says revival here. Yeah, we mean revival here, but what we really mean is revival. Here, right? Because if we have revival here, then the idea of revival in our church and in our, in our town and in our state and in our country and in the world is effectively a done deal, but it has to start here. So this is what we mean when we say revival here. It's not, oh, what will happen here, but what will happen here. And the, I want to talk today about the, um, the, 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 the direct link between uh, the idea of repentance and revival, and so specifically about the idea of revival, um, and we're going to talk about that. So let's let's begin. Uh, Hosea chapter ten, verse twelve says, "Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you." If you're here last week, if you weren't, you need to go listen to it. But if you're here last week, uh, Pastor Mike had this thing out, right? This uh, what is this called? A tiller. Okay. Anybody ever use one of these things? Okay, and, uh, and, and this is really important. And he talked about the idea of fallow ground. And fallow ground is ground that has previously been uh, cleared and maybe used or anything like that. And then uh, rain and weather hardens it again. And so when he's talking about your fallow ground, that's what he means is the hard ground. Has anybody here ever, ever used this to clear a brand new garden? Like, like, like you've got grass and you've dug up the grass first and then, and then, and then what do we find? What do we find that in New England, what do we actually grow in New England? What is it? Rocks. We grow rocks. I don't know how they happen, but they keep growing, right? I actually worked on a farm when I was a kid and on my very first day on the farm, they had just plowed the fields. This is a farm that had been in existence for like a hundred years. And that's a field that they had used for like 100 years to grow, uh, to grow food for the dairy cows. So that's what we did. It was a dairy farm. And first day, they've got like a bucket loader and a bunch of people, and we're loading rocks. I was like, dude, what is the problem? And he's like, this is what we grow. We grow rocks in New England, right? And so if you've ever actually used one of these rototillers on new ground, it goes, and it's just rocks and things like that. But you have to do it in order to plow up the ground, and so we, he talked about repentance as that. Now, I want to point out something, though, is that, is that I want you to listen to this. He says, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Why? Because he's mad? No, because he wants to rain righteousness on you. Then the rest of this message can actually be summed up in this very scripture. We're not going to end here because we've got time, but um, <laughs> he says, you have plowed in wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way in the multitude of mighty men. It's not a question of have we been sowing and reaping. It's a question of what have we been sowing and what have we been reaping. God wants us to plow and break up the fallow ground because he wants to rain righteousness on us and he wants us to grow the fruit of the spirit. 
But it's not as if it's not as if we haven't been plowing. It's that we have been plowing in the wrong place. We have been plowing wickedness. We have reaped iniquity. We've eaten the fruit of lies. Why? Because you trusted in your own way and in the multitude of my of your mighty men. And so keep in mind this scripture as we go through the rest of them today that everything kind of pulls back and relates to this. Now, one of the other things that Pastor Mike had was this sword. And uh, it's made me think of this, right? Um, so the sword, he talks about this and he says the sword is the sword of the spirit, right? And he used this scripture. And we're going to read it again here. And it says, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He talked about that as the sword, as the word of God. Now, now there's two words, there's two words in the, in the Greek for, for word, right? A couple of words for, for Greek and the word. And one is logos, and logos is what would be effectively the written word of God, right? Or the written word. The written word would be logos. And rhema is a living word. Rhema is a living word, and, and in the context of the Bible, it means a God-breathed word. If you've ever been reading your Bible, and it feels like the words just jumped off the page at you, and God begins, that's rhema. That's a word that is alive. That word is sharper than any two-edged sword, because although a two-edged sword might divide you know, your, uh, your, your, your small intestine from the rest of your body, um, this says that, it, that what it does is it, is it actually goes down to the division of your spirit and your soul, to the innermost part of who you are and understands not just what you're doing, but why you're doing. It says the thoughts and intentions of your heart. It will actually divide out the good and the bad intentions of your heart. Sometimes we don't even understand why we do the things we do, but God knows why we do the things we do, and he uses the word of God in order to reveal that to us. Why? Because he wants to rain righteousness on us. Now, I want to talk about repentance today. And before we talk about that, we need to talk about this rototiller over here. Because does anybody know, if, and if you're in the kind of industry, you might know, but, but not a lot of us are farmers. Anybody know what the danger of plowing a field and using that field repeatedly or using a rototiller is? There's actually a danger to it. Say that again. It goes barren. It goes barren. Why would it go barren? Well, you could use up all the nutrients. One of the ways that it happens is you get something called hard pan. Anybody ever heard the term hard pan? Okay. When you're plowing, especially when you use an old, what was called a harrow plow or a row, a row plow, there was actually a pressure that was applied to lift the ground up. And everybody knows because we, we took some form of physics or something like that, that there, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so the pressure of pulling that ground up is also pushing the ground beneath it down. And it compacts that ground. And if you continue to plow at a surface level, you get, you, the, it, com, it compacts the dirt underneath it, and it will get to this like substrate, what we think of as clay but up here, but it will get to the substrate underneath it where it becomes hardened so hard that it is impermeable to even water. So you could have an acre field and effectively have a giant one-acre tray of clay with six inches of soil on the top of it. And when that happens, water can't get down, but also more nutrients and worms and bugs and things like that can't get up. And, and, and then that, that ground becomes played out, and you, have to, and you have to let it sit. Well, there's an alternative to that, is they have, a, um, they have a different kind of plow that doesn't just look like this, but they have a different kind of plow. And that plow looks like 
this. Actually, it looked way bigger than this. It looks like it looks like like Thanos' sword. Like it's a giant sword. It's big, and they drag it behind a plow. But it's actually longer. And so when you look at this, when you look at this, you can see that this would go down so deep, right? But this can go a lot deeper. And so they'll actually have in uh, old school plows some harrow plows. They actually have like a like a, a thing that actually looks like a sword that drags behind it. So as they're pushing, it's trying to drag behind it to keep that from happening. But if it does happen, they have to drag this thing this way, and it goes down beneath the, the, the ground that looks like it's plowed, pierces through to that hard pan underneath, and digs it up. Now, the premise of today's message is that partial, repeated repentance, partial, repeated repentance instead of full repentance, partial repeated repentance can lead to hard pain in our lives, can lead to a hardness in our heart, deep in our life, where on the outside we continue to, it allows us the, the fallacy of being able to look at the repentance that we've done and say that's enough. And it creates a deeper hardness in our heart and, and it'll make us, it'll make us, uh, it'll, it'll use up all the nutrients in our life and it'll make us barren. And so sometimes if you're looking at your life and you're saying that possibly, why is it that I look at, I look and I've actually repented and I've tried to do these things and I'm trying to do those things. And yet there still seems to be a barrenness. Perhaps it's because we have not allowed the, the sword of the spirit to penetrate all the way through to the joints and marrow and the spirit and the thoughts and intentions of our heart and allowed us to have a complete and true repentance. And by the way, I want to make a statement right ahead of time that if you think that repentance is a decision that you make or a thing that you did at one point in time, you would be wrong. That repentance needs to be a lifestyle of repentance. If any time I run into something that is not God, I need to repent of that in my life and continue to do this. So, so that's what we're going to talk about today. So he says here that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow is a discerner of the, of the thoughts and intents of our heart. And there's no creature hidden in his sight, but all things are naked and opened to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, there's a guy named David Gusick. Uh, if you get the Blue Letter Bible app, you can get actually his, his entire commentary. He's got a commentary on a bunch of the Old Testament, but the entire New Testament. I want to give a quote to him right now. He says here that the Bible isn't a collection of merely old stories and myths. It has inherent life and power. The Bible is the living word of God. And, and our purpose in, in, in reading the word of God should not be the collection of knowledge, but rather meeting with the author who's right there sitting next to you as you're reading it. So the Bible is alive and gives life to the preacher and to anyone else who receives it in faith. And so today, if, if, if I'm preaching, or last week if Pastor Mike was preaching, or the week before, and maybe next week when Pastor Ron is preaching, or whoever you see preaching, if, if you're sitting there and, and God begins to speak to you, don't look at the preaching and go, wow, he did a great job. That, that, don't do that. It is actually the Holy Spirit making the word of God alive to you right now. And I want you to think about the impact of that. That means that he loves you enough to sit in church next to you. In my case, to listen to my bad singing so that he can sit in church next to me and tell me about how, God, how his word applies to my life. So today we're going to talk about um, repentance and the death that is involved in repentance. 
Because repentance involves death. But what I want to do is I want to tell you what, what kind of the journey we're about to take. Because by the time we're done, I don't want it to be a litany of sins and of things that we need to repent from. Uh, it, it makes it much easier if we can just make it one, right? Uh, and, so, and so all of the things all will lead, by the end of today, will lead to one thing. That if, that if there's one thing, and we're going to talk actually about three categories of things that we need to repent from. But, but, but they all are tributaries that lead back to one root. So if you want to kill something, you kill it at the root. And so we're going to lead back to, what God, what is the one thing that if I repent from that and repent thoroughly from it and honestly from it and completely from it, Revival will begin in my life. Just one thing. Cool? So staying with me. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but remember that it all leads back to one thing. And one thing only. If we can repent from that, then revival is at hand. So the very first thing we needed to do is to define repentance. The first thing we need to understand is that repentance demands change. Repentance demands change. And change always requires pain. All change involves pain. If you are someplace from now and you want to change, it always will require pain. Whether you're trying to change from something that's harming you or even change to something that's good. If you want to, if you want to start going to the gym, uh, that requires pain because you have to say no to some things in your life in order to say yes to other things. And then you go to the gym and then it hurts while you're there. And then it hurts the next day. And then it hurts like two days later. And then if you're like my daughters and, and you come home from the gym and you started going to the gym and you said, Dad, my legs hurt. What will I do? Grab your leg, of course, right? I will poke you in your leg. Does that hurt? Does that hurt? And, of course, and so all pain involves change. Even if it's something good, it involves, it involves pain. I'll give you another example just from our life. We, we made a decision. Um, we were looking around. Maybe we'll buy a new house. Decided we weren't going to buy a new house. that would invest some money in our existing house. And um, we're currently in the midst of getting our kitchen redone. And it's good and exciting, especially when we're like picking out tiles and picking out colors and picking out light fixtures, picking out stuff. And that's not where we're at right now. Right now, like the back half of our house is taped off, right? And like our kitchen is in our dining room and it's all really small. And, you know, the seltzer is in the basement. You have to walk outside. And, and it's, you know, and so, but all, but all change, even though this is a good thing, it involves pain, Right? And so before we even did the kitchen, I looked at my wife and I said, hey, honey, uh, this is great. We get to do this. Fantastic that we're blessed to be able to do this. But, uh, but like, it, I've set the level uh, uh, at chaos. And if there's anything less than utter chaos, then I'm just going to consider it great. I'm trying to manage this because I know it's going to be pain. So even things that are good require pain. Now, something I want you to know about human nature is that because all change requires pain, no one will change until the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain of change. I'll say that again, because it sounds like it's a tongue twister. All change requires, involves pain. Therefore, no one will change until the change of remaining the same becomes greater than the change of pain. Than the pain of change. See, I knew I'd get it wrong. <laughs> right? So there's pain involved in staying where you're at. Just like our kitchen, just like you may be going to the gym, just like maybe you stopping sin, there's always pain involved in that. But until you're willing to say the pain of remaining the same is greater than that pain of change, I won't change. So we need to begin by understanding what repentance is. Number one, 
Repentance requires pain. Number two, pain is not necessarily a bad thing. Our culture, in American culture, pain is always considered a bad thing. Pain is not necessarily a bad thing. As a matter of fact, now that with the perspective of years, when I look back at my life, the greatest gifts that God has given to me in my life, and I would think that they would be in yours as well, the testimony of God's provision for my life, the ability to have compassion for other people, the value, the intrinsic value of human life, the ability to honor my wife for who she is. All of these, all of these things came not because of success and ease, but because of pain and death. All of them. Now, would I have liked to have learned the lessons and gotten these things without those things? Absolutely. But would I rather have gone through them and come out the other side with those things in my life and many other, many other things that God has shown me? Absolutely. So, so understand that, that pain is involved in life and death is involved in life. And until we look at that, embrace it, then, then we, have to, we have to look at that, embrace it, and say, okay, it can be bad, but God is with me. I'm going to read something that I wrote, and I want you to just think about maybe this, if this applies to you, so I kept it in the first person. I fear the pain required to change me. I fear the pain required to change me more than I want to become the person God has planned. I look at Joseph and David and Paul, heroes of the faith, but I look at the pain that they went through before that became reality and I say, "Eh, no thanks. Now that would be bad. But what is really happening is that I'm looking instead at Gethsemane and pulling back. I look at Jesus, actually. If I don't want to press in, then what I'm really doing is I'm looking at Jesus sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane, understanding what's about to happen. And I'm saying, I don't want any part of that. Is that what I really mean? I hope not. See, the problem is, is that the key to revival in my life, in our church, in our community, in our state, in our nation, in our world, the key to revival is repentance. But we tend to think that revival means that we're dead and need to be made alive. That is true. We're dead to God. But it's not true that we're dead. The problem is that we're alive to something else. The problem isn't that we're dead, but the problem is that we're alive to something else that's other than God. And that thing needs to be killed. And I want to tell you that things that are alive don't die easily. Ask the grass that's growing through the cracks in your driveway right now. Right? You're like, if I could get you to grow over there, but I keep pulling it out and squirting stuff on it, and it just keeps coming back. Things that are alive don't die easily. Neither will the life that you live apart from God die easily either. You have to kill it. Repentance, true repentance, the kind of repentance that brings revival is choosing God at the cost of everything else. It is turning away in order to turn to God. So here becomes the first thing. That real repentance, let's define it. Real repentance requires three steps. Three steps. Not two, not one, not four. Three steps. True repentance involves three steps. 
And it's actually found in the actual underlying Greek word. Because the Greek for repentance actually means to think differently. So the very first thing, and here's an analogy. What if I just went down the road, down here, past the, down on Marion Avenue, and I, I got on 84 and I wanted to go to Hartford, right? But instead of getting on 84 East, I got on 84 West. I am going the wrong way, right? And I will continue to go the wrong way until 84 ends. Somewhere in Harrisburg. I don't know, wherever that is, right? I'll continue to go the wrong way. And I will never get to Hartford as long as I stay in 84 West from here, right? True? So what's the very first thing I need to do? What is, so somebody said turn around? No, no, that's not the first thing I need to do. The first thing I need to do is I need to go, crud, I've gone the wrong way. Right? The very first thing I need to do is to recognize that I've gone the wrong way. Because if I don't recognize that I've gone the wrong way, and if my wife is saying, I think we're lost, I'm like, we're not lost, we still have gas. Right? If I'm still doing that, right? If I'm still going, we're not lost, and I will not admit that I'm lost, I can never, I will never look for the exit ramp. True? Now, as soon as I realize that I've got, I'm going the wrong way, I need to go, oh, crud. I've gone the wrong way. Depending upon how far, maybe I need to call people, admit that I've gone the wrong way, I'm going to be late for my meeting in Hartford, whatever that thing is, right? And then I need to do what? Then what? I need to get off of the very first exit. Jesus is the exit. There you go. I need to get off the very first exit. That's the first thing. So first thing I need to do is think differently. Second thing I need to do is turn away from the way I was going, right? I was actually talking with, uh, with John, uh, and, and he brought it up. I thought it was a great idea. Um, because what happens if I'm going 84 West, and I recognize I'm going up the hill. I, go, I don't go up a hill to get to Hartford. I'm going up the hill to Waterbury. So the very first thing I do is I get off, right? And the problem is, what's the very first thing that's there when I get off the highway? Blackies? <laughs> he was just going to, he's like, oh, yeah, Blackies is up there. And you're like, oh, well, maybe I'm off. Maybe I'll have a hot dog here. Oh, there's, there's shopping over there. I'll go into Costco and I'll see. Anyway, and the next thing you know, I'm distracted. And no, 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 I need to go. No, I need to go to Hartford. I need to go the right direction, right? I need to not get distracted by everything else that's in life because that's exactly what will happen, right? And I'll be sitting there eating a chili dog when I should be in Hartford, right? I need to get off. And I need to turn around and I need to go back. So three steps. One, if I'm going in the wrong direction, I need to recognize that that direction leads to death. So I need to think differently about the direction of my life. Two, I need to turn away from it. Right? That's the turnaround part. I need to turn away from it. I need to forsake it and leave it go. And not be, oh, those were the good old days, any kind of thing like that. I need to leave it go. And then... I need to turn towards something because it's not just enough to stop going in that direction. I need to turn towards something. And when I turn towards something, I need to turn towards God. So three steps. One, I need to think differently. Two, I need to turn away from evil. And three, I need to turn towards God. All three are required. If I do one and skip a step, it's not repentance. If I do three and skip a step, if I do two and three, if I do, I made a chart. Because I'm a nerd. I made a chart. Can you put that chart up? Okay. Made a chart. This is what I was thinking. Okay. Here's, right? Here's the three steps. I can think differently. I need to turn away. I need to turn towards God. And what's the result? Okay. So the first one is, what happens if I just think differently, but I never turn away from what I'm doing, and I never turn towards God? Oh, I think this thing is providing pleasure. I think this thing is good. Oh, now I think this thing is bad. But I never turn away. 
And also, oh, what do I get? I get, oh, this is bad. Oh, I'm bad. Oh, my life is going wrong. Oh, things are bad. And maybe I'll even blame other people, right? Oh, other things are going wrong. It must be somebody else's fault. And I go, oh, this is something wrong. But I never turn away. What am I? I'm a victim. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what critical race theory teaches right now. It's making victims of an entire class of people based on their, based on, on their, on their design from God. And telling them that the reason why you aren't, going, aren't, aren't succeeding in life is because it's somebody else's fault. And in doing that, I steal the power away from those very people. And when you have no power, you have no ability to succeed. And it's the same thing that happens with us. If I say, I'm going this way, and I never change, all I can become is a victim. And I get this victim mentality. So what happens here? What happens if I, if I don't think differently about my sins, but I do turn away? Somebody else told me that it was wrong, and so because somebody else told me it's wrong, I'm going to turn away. But I don't actually think differently about those things. And if I don't think differently about those things, I can never be empowered by God, and so who's left actually doing the turning away but me? And what I can get is in case, reformation and not transformation. I may start to look better on the outside, but I've never actually changed what's happening on the inside, and so I can only get reformation, and it can only ever be temporary. Pastor Brian and I have talked about this a little bit because he dealt with a lot of people who had substance abuse issues. I've dealt with a few people myself um, who are struggling with substance abuse issues, and I call it white-knuckling. Um, he calls it someone being a dry drunk, right? A white knuckling where the person has stopped doing the drugs or stopped drinking or stopped doing the thing, but because they haven't changed how they think and the reason that got them into that problem, then they're just white knuckling it, right? They're like trying to do it in their own strength. I'm going to stay clean. And all that happens is they're just going to wear themselves out and go back to where they were. So it's a reformation, but it can only be a temporary reformation. Okay, what happens? What happens if I, if I, if I just turn towards God? If I don't think differently about my sin, I just, and, I, and, I, and I don't turn away from my sin, but I add a little Jesus to my life. All I can ever be is a hypocrite. Because I'm continuing to do the things that, that basically are the reason why Jesus came and died on the cross. I continue to do those things. I continue to do the things that destroy my life. I never allow him to transform my life. And yet I tell everybody that I'm a Christian, please stop doing that. You're just a hypocrite. Okay, so I can get hypocrisy over here. Then I go, okay, what happens if I think differently and I do turn away, but I don't towards, turn, turn towards God? Well, if I think differently about my sin and I turn away from my sin, but I don't turn towards God, what am I left with? But me. And when I'm left with me and I'm trying to reform myself and I'm trying to turn away from my sin, and all I have is me because I haven't turned towards God and allowed him to impart, empower me, what do I do but set up barriers so that I never go back there and guardrails so that, not that barriers and guardrails are, are doing it, but if I'm doing it, I'm trusting in those things, all I do is get a set of rules and all I ever get is religion and legalism. And God hates that. What happens if I turn away from my sin and I turn towards God, but I never think differently about my sin? That means that I've actually turned away from sin and I've turned towards God, but I don't actually think differently about it. Maybe I make excuses for it. Maybe, maybe secretly I have it in my mind. I don't ever actually close the door on it and forsake it. Well, those, those were the good old days kind of thinking, right? I wish I could, but I can't because I'm a Christian. What I get is I get carnality, which is just another form. If you look at it, it's just another form of reformation. I get carnality. And what it's doing is, is I am saying that I'm a Christian. That's like saying that my house is secure and that, and that I'm doing that, but I'm leaving a door open in my life. It's like saying that I don't want mice around, but I'm leaving food outside. 
And as long as I continue to feed it, it will grow. And it will wait for an opportunity when you're weak and come back. This is, how, this is how people get free from sin and then years later fall back into it. It's because the entire time they never thought differently about their sin. And so they're always feeding it on the inside, waited for an, an opportune time where it could gain power, gain power. And when something tragic happens in your life, it comes back and crushes you. It's because you've never completely repented. What happens if I think differently from, about my sin? I turn towards God, but I never turn away. This happens a lot. People are like, okay, this is wrong. This is bad. I know I need to change, right? I know I need to change. Jesus, please come help me. But they never do the things that are required to cut people off in their life, to cut things off in their life, to, to, to change habits, to do the things that cut things off in their life. And when you do that, what you have is you have a Christian who is still in bondage. They're a Christian, and they're, they're actually a Christian. They've turned towards God. They're thinking differently about their sin. But because they've never turned away from it, they're still in bondage to the thing that brought them there. Far too many Christians that are like that. It's because they haven't completely repented. All of those things. So there's a lot of things you can do. You say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven different possibilities. Only the bottom one. Only the eight, that bottom possibility. Only that one. When I think differently about my sin actually take action to turn away from it and turn towards God, do I actually have repentance? And, and, and until I do that, and until I do that thoroughly, I'm in danger of creating hard pain in my life. And if you think that you can do that in one time, you don't have enough time to do it in one time, right? Like, you, you're going to need to do it and then do it over and over and over again as God shows you more things, Right? So repentance ultimately needs to become a lifestyle. Okay. So now that we've defined what it is, let's talk about it. I said that when we repent, we repent and turn away from what? So I said there are three things. We're going to put put these things that we need to repent from in three categories. One, two, three. Each one of those categories is a tributary that leads back to the single sin that I need to repent from. If I repent from that single sin, all of these things magically disappear. Not magically. It sounds like, uh, what is that, Lucky Charms, right? They're magically delicious, right? Yeah, so no. All of these things will wither and die in our life, and the only thing we'll be left with is Jesus. So the first one, I said there was three, it's really four. (laughs) Um, Kind of one A and one B, all right? Because the first one is really overt sin. What I mean by overt sin is things that you or somebody else can see in our lives, Kind of the outsides and the things that we do. And I break it down into two things because really the first one is things that we do to ourselves. And the second is over sin that we do to other people. And there's two different mechanisms behind it. So let's talk about that, right? So it's really over sin is the first one. Outside sin is the first one. And this is the thing that we normally think about when we think about repentance. It's just this one category. We need to explore it to understand it before we go on to two and three. It's really the first one is two pieces, things that we do to ourselves, things that we do to other people. So here's the first one. And, um, and it really comes from what I wrote down was personal coping. The way that we get captured into personal sin, the way that this happens is that we take the central truth of God and pull it out of our lives. And once you or we as a person or as a society pull the central truth of God out of our lives and we don't want to hear it anymore, then everything else comes crashing down. 
Usually that's, that comes from some kind of pain or tragedy, or it could, when I say pain or tragedy, it could just be the pain of not knowing what your life is supposed to be like, something like that. Or it could be genuine pain or tragedy that comes into our life. And Satan sneaks in and says, I can take that pain away if you'll only do this thing. That's the lie that Satan has. I can take that pain away if you'll just do this. He did it with Jesus, right? When he, when he tempted Jesus in the desert, he ultimately said, hey, listen, all of these things that you came from, all these things you came for, dominion and control and regaining the world, I'll give it to you now. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to be rejected. You don't have to suffer. I'll give it to you now. Just worship me. So if he tempted Jesus with that, why wouldn't he tempt us with the same thing? So what he does is he says, what I want you to do is and when there's pain or tragedy or something, the way that you cope is instead of going to God or maybe doing the hard work of going to God, that you come over here and do something else. And the way that that happens is we say, I don't want to listen to God anymore. I don't want to hear this anymore. I'm going to go do this thing. And when we do that, here's what happens. This is Romans 1. It says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He makes a statement here. And listen to it. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest to them because God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being underscored by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an excuse. Every person on the face of the earth Every person sitting in this room, every person listening to the sound of my voice, every person is without an excuse. Because what what needs to be known about God has been made known by God by just looking around at the world. So think about that for a second. Okay? Then he says this. He says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. And And they became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to become to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And we tend to think that what this means is that this is about idolatry, but then he's going to go on and talk about it here. He says, therefore, because people didn't want to retain God's knowledge in their minds, therefore God gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For their women exchanged the natural use, even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which is due. Let's make sure we don't stop there. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, Violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. 
who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. When we start down the road of saying no to God to cope for the things that are in our life, it all falls down. It falls down in our lives personally. You know, the list that was there about murder also included backbiting and gossip. The list that was there that talked about homosexuality also talked about other forms of, of, of uh, um, sexual immorality and also just talked about being unmerciful and unforgiving. The list is the same. So let's not pull one out and allow ourselves to blame other people and excuse ourselves from our own sin. This is what happens when we choose anything other than God to cope with it. That becomes the overt sin. We wind up doing that to ourselves. We wind up hurting ourselves because of it. This is the thing that, that most people, when they think about repentance, think about something on this list. And by the way, uh, if, you think that what, if you look around at our culture and you think that this is anything new, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this to the Romans 2,000 years ago. This is nothing new. What we're seeing in our culture is nothing new. It is simply the result of a culture that, that has pulled out the, the, the keystone uh, of the arch that holds up everything, and now the, the whole thing's collapsing. It's what happens when people, as individuals and communities and states and nations, choose to not follow God. So where does it start? Getting a new law? No. Voting? Yeah, we should. I should have said something at the beginning about everybody voting on Tuesday. We should all vote, right? You want to talk to me about politics later? We can talk about the individual politics. Happy to do it. But, uh, but you know, we get to vote. And that's a cool thing. But I want to tell you something. that The, the voting, while it's great, and you should do it, uh, isn't, isn't the key to changing our, our nation. Repentance is the key to changing our nation. And repentance not over what other people have done, but where am I on this list? So that's one, right? Over here, 1A. I need to think differently about those things that are destroying me and those around me. I need to think differently about them and be willing to forsake them and turn away and then turn to God right where I am. Right where I am. We're going to talk about that. That's a great part right where I am, and repent from those things. So that's one. Two, what about when we violate others? This is what I mean. Where do, because sometimes I do things to myself, and sometimes I do things to other people, right? And so I ask myself, where does warring and fighting come from in, in, in the midst of us? And it actually says it here in James. It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? In other words, sometimes I want pleasure for myself. I want to think for myself, and I'm going to sin against myself. And sometimes I have, a, have an idea of what's good for me, and you're in the way. And so, like, like, the, like the whole society is one giant Black Friday morning, right? I'm just elbowing people out of the way, right? And sometimes you're the person elbowing, and sometimes you're the person getting elbowed, right? He says, you, you war and you fight. Because they, they come from your pleasures that war in your members. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. And yet you do not have because you do not ask. But then even when you ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss with the wrong motivation. That you may spend it on your own pleasures. I ask God for blessings, not because I want to, not because I want to be close to him or anything like that. But I ask God for blessings simply to make me look better to other people. Or simply so that I can enjoy something for my own pleasure. God looks at that and he says, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God there forever? Who wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? What he's saying is make a choice. 
the world and all it can offer, and it can offer a lot. And by the way, is, is, is any of the things that the world offers bad and evil in and of themselves? Not, not really. But it's, it's, it's when I seek to, to find my purpose and meaning in life in that and not in God that I need to repent from that. I need to think differently about that and turn away from it and turn towards God. Because either I am doing it and hurting myself or I'm knocking over other people in the pursuit of my own pleasure. And I need to repent from that. But ultimately, there's a reason underneath it. There's an underlying reason underneath that that leads back to this one sin. That if I repent from that, all of that goes away. So let's talk about the second thing. So number one is over its sin. Number two, the second thing that I need to repent from. Listen, the second thing that I need to repent from is my own dreams and expectations for my life and how I expect it to go. My dreams and the expectations for my own life. Look. If you've ever had kids, you know this, that kids come not just with uh, you know, future poopy diapers in their life, right? Kids come with a set of dreams and expectations. My kid could be anything. And when you're young, you don't even know what they're talented in. So, so it, it's completely open. And then when you find out that they're, they're good at some things and not good at other things, it starts to get narrower. But still, still, the, 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 the sky's the limit. It's, the future is bright, right? And when you're young, you think, I can do anything. Right? And then, and then and there's, there's this whole thing about, and then what happens is, is you get to be older, and sometimes you still hang on to that, and you go, you know what? I thought I could do anything. I thought I would be more than I am right now. And it winds up creating bitterness in my own life. And that bitterness creates pain, and the pain causes me to want to cope, and then I cope in a way that either hurts myself or other people, right? So what happens is, is I have this dream and expectation of what my life should be like. And I want to tell you that if you have a dream and expectation of what your life should be like, and it's not God-breathed from God himself, it comes from my own imagination, and it's wrong. I need to think differently about that. I need to cut that off and let it die. I need to cut it off and let it die and turn away from it and say, here I am and I'm turning towards God. All of the things in the world have this thing that wants to put a hook into us. You think that this is not the case. I want to read something to you. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. This is now... Now, as he was going out on the road, he came, one came running. So Jesus is walking, someone comes running up to him, knelt before him and said, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, and that is God. Now, that's, by the way, Jesus saying that he's God. We'll get to that another time. He says, but then he says to this guy, he goes, you know the commandments, you know the commandments, you know the things, right, against what we just read in Romans, right? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And this young man, he answers him and he says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now Jesus doesn't go, ha, 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 yeah, yeah, but I know the real truth. He doesn't do that. What does it say next? It says Jesus looking at him loved him. Jesus looking at him loved him. Repentance is not about, oh my goodness, I have to admit that I'm wrong and God was right all the time and now I'm going to feel bad and my pride is going to... Jesus looked at him and loved him. God loves you. He looked at him and he loved him and he said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful 
for he had great possessions. Were his great possessions the problem? No. His great possessions became the problem because they kept him from following his Savior. Here was a guy that Jesus loved. Here was a guy who was trying to make it right. And yet, his, he, and, and yet he even said all of this overt sin, you won't find it in my life. Maybe you'd find it, but you wouldn't find it in, in a big way in his life. He says, all those things I've kept. He goes, okay, but what about your expectations about where you're supposed to be? This is the story of what we call the rich young ruler. He was rich, he was young, and he was in charge. He probably had a million followers on TikTok, and, uh, and he could sing. Like, right, right? So, he, right, right? so here was a guy who had, like, had it all going on, right? And what was his problem? His problem wasn't the things that he was doing. His problem was that he was, he was in love with his own life. And God said, be in love with me instead. And he goes, I... I kind of like what I got going on over here. And so if I'm a friend of the world, I wind up being an enemy of God. And there is no way. You have to make a choice. And so here's a person who had these expectations really hard when you're younger because it's limitless. When you get older, you have the, the, the possibilities, but you also might have regrets of how you thought things might, have to, might, might be. By this time in my life, I expected to have this. By this time in my life, I expected to have this, and I don't. And my expectations aren't met, and therefore it brings me pain. And the pain, I go back and I cope incorrectly, right? This is why Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, he said, when he called his disciples to himself, um, and the people himself with his disciples, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But he whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will a man, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Have you ever stopped to think about the value of the person who is sitting inside the body that is sitting in your seat? Have you ever stopped to think about the value of the person that is sitting inside the body of the person that is sitting inside your, on your seat right now? Look, our bodies, valuable as they are, our bodies are here for us to exist, and they're going to grow old, and they're going to die, and you're going to get a new one. But the person looking outside of your body from the inside of your eyeballs, that's you. The person on the inside, have you ever stopped to think about the value of that? You might not think it's much, but the value is determined by the price that someone is willing to pay. And Jesus said, the God, the King of glory, the creator of the universe, of all things that have ever been created, he came and he said, I will give my life in exchange for the person who is sitting inside the body that is sitting inside your seat right now. And so he's placed an infinite price on it. And he loves you infinitely. And that makes you of infinite value. And so what would you give in exchange for that? What would you trade away? A Ferrari? A nice house? Green grass? What would you trade away for that? Nothing is more value than that. Now look, I hope you have a Ferrari and a nice house with green grass and I can be your friend. And you'll let me drive your Ferrari. <laughs> I have nothing wrong with that, Right? It's nothing wrong with that. It's, 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 it's the people who trust in those things. That's the reason why, the reason why after he, this man went away, he said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? This is back to uh, the earlier scripture. How hard is it is to, to, for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished. But he said, children, how hard is it for those who trust in their riches? To enter the kingdom of God. The riches aren't the problem. The riches is just dangerous because it allows us to take our mind off of things and say, I have things I don't need to, I don't need to go to God because I have stuff. I've accumulated things and I don't need God for it. 
We need to get to a place where we go, no, that's, that, I need to think differently about it. I need, to, I need to be able to have things in the world without the things in the world having me. And, if, and the things in the world have you, I need to think differently about it. I need to turn away and forsake that thought and turn towards God. And I need to be with honesty in my heart, being willing to look at God and say, you could burn it all down. I don't need it. I don't need my car. I don't need my job. I don't need my house. I don't need people who love me. I don't need food. I don't even need to breathe. If you just give me Jesus, now if I can't breathe, I'll see him soon. But if you just give me Jesus, you can burn the rest of it down. Happy to have it. Happy to have it. Blessed to have all those things in my life. But you could burn it all down and give me Jesus. Because the alternative is, I stay with it, and when it burns all down, I don't have Jesus. Then what do I have? I have nothing. I hope you have stuff. If you're a millionaire, let me know. I'd like to be your friend. Look, but it doesn't matter, right? It really doesn't matter. So, I need to, I need to repent maybe from the expectations of my own life. And how I thought my life would go. And turn that around and say, as long as the way it goes is with you, Jesus, that's enough. The third thing I need to repent from. And this is a hard thing to think about. The third thing I need to repent from. The third thing I need to think differently about. And forsake it and turn away from it and turn to God. The third thing I need to do. Is my own goodness. Now, now that sounds bad. That sounds wrong because we're supposed to be good, right? But I need to turn away from my, not goodness, but my goodness. I need to turn away from, from, from me trusting that my good works are somehow scoring points with God. Because if I think that those things, I could actually have, have really dealt with a vast majority of the sin. I could deal with this part. And then I could be like, oh, but, but look at all the good things I do. Look at the ministries I'm involved in. Look at the stuff I'm doing. Look at my charitable giving. And doesn't this give me, listen, I, I know we don't say it out loud, but doesn't this give me power over God so that he'll answer my prayers because of the list of things I've done? We never think that, do we? I need to repent of my own goodness. This is the reason why when when Nicodemus came to Jesus, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus kept all the rules. Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee, but he was actually a a leader of the Pharisees and a traveling teacher who went around and was teaching. And it says here, it it says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And he wants to have this theological discussion with him. And Jesus totally ignores what he just said and says this. Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus didn't hate Nicodemus. He didn't look down on him. He loved him. He agreed to meet with him. Privately. And when, when Nicodemus starts down this theological road, he goes, wait, Nicodemus, I want you to know something. You need to be born again. You, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a person who keeps all the rules, who does really good things, you need to be born again. And if he needed to be born again, so does everybody else in the world. 
And we're not born again based on the good things we've done. We're not acceptable to God based on the good things we're done. We're acceptable to God based on the good thing that he did. Titus chapter 3 verse 4 says this, when the kindness and love of God our Savior. See, the idea of repentance is not about making us feel bad. It's about making us turning away from the things that should make us feel bad and turning away to the one thing that would be good in our life. He says, when the kindness and love of God appeared, not the anger and wrath of God, but when the kindness and love of God appeared, of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, having been justified, having been justified by his grace having been justified by, by an, the unmerited favor of God, something that we didn't do anything to deserve, been justified by that, we become heirs to the hope of eternal life. Now listen, it's not that good works aren't a thing. Listen to what he says right very next. He says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. It's the same thing with riches. It's the same thing with goodness in our life. It's not that the problem is the riches or the goodness in our life. It's when we put our trust in them. It's not the the problem that doing good things, you should do good things. It's a good thing to do good things. You should do those things, but not as a way to trust in them because that, that puts a misplaced trust when our trust should only be in Jesus Christ. And when we put a trust in these things, then what we wind up obviously doing is comparing my good works to somebody else. We do one of two things with them. Either we use it as a vending, as coins into the vending machine of Jesus. I put all these good works in, press the button, you bring a blessing. That's not how it works. Or we wind up using it to compare ourselves with other people to somehow make ourselves better so that it makes us feel like we're closer to power. And that is really bad religion. He says this, that is by grace that you have been saved, right? He says we were justified by grace. Now, here's the thing. Make no mistake. Trusting yourself rather than God, trusting your good works rather than God, always, always, always leads to legalism and religion. It can have no other destination. And grace becomes a scandal. Grace is scandalous. God giving blessing to people who don't deserve it. God giving, giving blessings to people who have done nothing to receive it. How scandalous in our meritocracy of a culture where you, where you get what you earn. From the grades when we were a kid to, 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 to positions in, in, uh, of power and influence. We get all of that because of what we earn. And then we come to God and we see these people who are receiving God himself and have done nothing To gain it, and it becomes scandalous. And the scandal is this. The scandal of grace is the biggest stumbling block to revival for both the non-believing skeptic and the believing religionist. I'm going to say this again, that grace becomes a stumbling block to revival. I said repentance is the key to revival, and grace is a scandal that becomes, that becomes a stumbling block to non-believing atheists who look at that and say, God would never do that. Don't you see that person? And also to believing religionists 
will also look and see people receiving revival and say, you don't deserve it because you haven't done enough good things. Those two things become a stumbling block to revival because it is a scandal to them. And it's not a scandal to God. God works completely differently. Now, in the last few minutes, I want to I reveal to you, we're going to show you one thing, and we're, then, then we're going to reveal to you what that one sin is. I need to, I need to repent from my over sin. I need to repent from, uh, from my dreams and expectations for my own life. And I repent literally from my own goodness. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, now he, Paul in, in Philippians 3 says, listen, if you want to compare, if you want to measure up and you want to compare who has a better pedigree, you, you'd have to compare with me. Like, I was a Jew, know what tribe I came from, went to the right schools. I was a Pharisee, kept all the laws, even from the Pharisee standpoint, I even persecuted the church. I was, I was like the top of the heap. So he says, I had, all, I had it all going on. And yet what things were gained for me, I counted as loss for Christ. And indeed have counted all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of, of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. My friends, my, 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 my professional standing, uh, some of my health, all of it. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Nothing more to be chucked into the garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, and that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the, to the resurrection from the dead. And in here becomes the, 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 the unlocking of the key of fear, why people don't repent. Because they're like, okay, I'm thinking differently, but if I stop doing this and I turn towards God, what do I have? Now I have to struggle back to God on my hands and knees trying to build myself up. Or do I just stay here all alone by myself? I lose my friends. I lose my life. I lose everything that was going that way. And I give it all up for what? To just be alone? No. Listen to what he says here. This, is, this turns everything on his head. God says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He puts that first. Now, I know that, that, that repentance involves death and suffering and pain and all that stuff. But the very first thing he puts is he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. At the moment that you make a decision to turn to God, God says the very first thing I'm going to do is pour the same power that raised Jesus from the dead into your life. Because that's the only thing that is going to sustain you to these next steps. To the fellowship of his suffering. So that I can go back to Gethsemane and like Jesus said, not my will, but your will. I don't know what comes tomorrow, but as long as you're there with me, that's all that matters. So I have the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed even to his death. And if that means the death of my dreams and the death of my vision and the death of my reputation is okay because I still have Jesus. And only then can I, ha- can I attain to the resurrection of the dead, my own resurrection life, so that I could live, this is what Paul is saying, so I could live as if heaven was here on earth right now. That's what he means in that statement. How do I, I this is the promise of repentance, that I can get to that point, but I first have to be willing to, to repent. But I'm telling you that, that the moment that you repent, it's not that you repent and you're all alone and now you have to crawl back. That the moment that you repent, the God of the universe pours his resurrection power in your life. And says, let's go. 
And then the fellowship of sufferings and the conformity of his death, it's the fellowship that he walks with you through that. It's the conformity of his death that he walks with you through that so that when you're resurrected, you're resurrected to him. So, three things. Come back to one issue. I'll ask the question now as we end. Because if I asked it in the beginning, it seems like such a flippant question, so easy to answer. Do you trust God? Do you, oh, easy to say. Do you trust him? Can you say you trust God if you choose sin to cope on your own without him? Can you say that you trust God if you violate others in order to maintain control of your own life? Can you say that you trust God when you cling to the expectation of how your life should have turned out? Can you trust God when you are constantly demonstrating your own righteousness and legalism? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Deal with that. Allow that to pierce through to my heart. And say, do I trust him no matter what? Do I say yes, not knowing the future? Do I trust him? I'm telling you, friends, if you deal with that and deal with that thoroughly in all of your life, revival comes. Revival will come to you now. And if it hasn't come to you now, go back and ask yourself that question. Because the Bible says, God says, my eyes are looking back and forth across the whole earth, looking to see who who I can strongly support. Here's what this looks like. Here's what it ultimately looks like. Romans 12.1, last scripture. I'm begging you, I'm begging you, brethren, by the mercies of God, not by the anger of God, not by the judgment of God, but by his mercy. I'm begging you, brethren, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Put yourself on the altar. Write the blank check and allow him to fill it in. Put yourself on the altar and say whatever comes next, it's not up to me because I'm, an, I'm a sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. God doesn't say, oh, you should have come years ago. No, he says, no, 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 no. If you do this, this is holy and acceptable to God. It's holy and acceptable. It's your reasonable service. It's the least that we could do because of what he's done for us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. If you'll do this, you'll be transformed. I said we didn't need reformation, we need transformation. It starts with saying no to all of those things and yes to God. And when we do that, he fills us with his resurrection power. He says you're holy, you're acceptable. And he says then you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you will be able to prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. It's the only way that it works. There is no plan B. Do you trust God 
Now, some of you said yes. I could say yes, too. But do you trust God in all these different areas? Take time. Examine our hearts. Allow him to speak to us. Spend time in his word that allows us to speak to us. And dig through not just the surface stuff, but the deeper things. And pierce through. And when that happens, resurrection power comes. Will you do that? Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. First, I'm going to pray for us about this particular thing specifically. And then uh, we're going to pray and reaffirm our faith in Christ. And if you're here today and you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to now, um, that's great. Uh, you pray along with us, right? Um, maybe if you're here and you've, uh, you've done this in the past, but you've walked away from God and you, you want to reconfirm, reaffirm your faith, um, then you pray with us. So I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to pray out loud together. Um, and I'd ask you to pray along with us then, okay? But me first. Father, thank you for, for today. And thank you, Lord God, for your great love for us. And Lord, I ask by your Holy Spirit right now, right here, that you would pierce our hearts and open them up to you and to your love and mercy and things that we need to deal with in our life that you would just let us know that you are there with us that you would convict us of those things and convince us of your righteousness and of the judgment to come when you want to judge us and look at our life and say well done good and faithful servant Lord, by your Holy Spirit, do what you promised you would now. I'm going to ask that that we pray together and reaffirm our faith in Christ. If that's you, you pray along with us. And say, dear God, you know that I am a sinner. I cannot change on my own. But I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. That he died in my place. And that Jesus rose from the dead so that I could be forgiven. Please forgive me. And all that I am, all I ever will be, I lay it at your feet right now. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. So listen, um, if that's you this morning, uh, I'd love to uh, shake hands with you, pray with you. Uh, if you receive Christ for the very first time or if you've recommitted your life to him, I'd, I'd love to, to do that. The, the altar here is going to be open. If there's anything else that we can pray for you about, we'll stick around and, and pray with you. We don't have another service coming up, so we'll stay as long as we need to. Um, uh, the rest of you guys, God bless you.